0: what did i miss hello edwin edwin my boy
1: (sighs) can you hear me okay my son
0: why is this happening i'm a
2: cat now (laughs) what's 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 there to understand this is who i
1: am (laughs) connor's always looked like that
3: Welcome, to Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 107. Today, we are talking about politics and movies—a very tricky subject, actually, for the obvious reasons and the not obvious reasons. But something we haven't talked about really directly, and I think is worthy of conversation. Who is with us today?
0: Hey, it's Daniel.
2: Hey, it's me, Carly Cruz, the People's Champion.
0: Hello, America. You no, know, it's another day in the technology world where. It- doesn't work and starting to get annoying and i am craig the founder programmer secret movie club daniel was
3: a moose avatar with adam driver behind him but then when he took off the moose avatar he's wearing a zorro mask (laughs) (laughs) so i i mean i guess we're keeping it spicy (laughs) oh and now it's gone connor is a cat avatar he's still a cat avatar yeah and behind him is jeb bush hands held up to the sky as if gripping imaginary grapefruits, and uh, Edwin, I have a beautiful Dutch angle of Edwin's ceiling fan in his bedroom. And I, you know, I don't know that there's really much more to say about politics and film. So it's great talking to you guys. Uh, have a great week. Thank you so much. I think we really nailed this one. That's it. Take care. Bye, Edwin.
0: Meow. Goodbye, citizens. Wait, what? Hap- wait, what the- wait, what? Wait, what? Love you, family. Wait, 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 what the? <laughs> What's going on? You no, know F- this, I'm and I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. We we've proven.
3: It is easier to mess with Edwin than you would think. All right, let's get this going. By the time that you hear this on Friday continuing with our surreal summer. We are going to be showing on 35mm David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. Nice. Also in celebration of his new movie, Crimes of the Future, which is actually the title of his first film as well, but they have nothing to do with each other. And if you have not seen the trailer for the new Crimes of the Future, by the time you hear this pod, we'll know the reviews. That trailer is almost more uncomfortable to watch than most David Cronenberg movies. He clearly is not losing a step, nor mellowing in his old age. The new Crimes of the future, which I uh, will have premiered at Cannes by the time you hear this, is where people have turned surgery, creating new body appendages and organs into performance art and the new sex. As Kristen Stewart famously says in the trailer, surgery is the new sex. Naked Lunch, which is a book I read and loved by William Burroughs, very famously written by Burroughs In the grips of heroin addiction in Morocco is also very surreal. The movie, which you can't really adapt the book. That was sort of the point. Cronenberg in the early nineties was on this amazing run of adapting the unadaptable. He did this and then he'd go on and do Crash a few years later. I love Naked Lunch and I love Crash. So join us some tremendously surreal and unsettling imagery. And Roy Scheider is in this one. Boy Scheider. On Saturday, we are going to be showing a Nicholas Winding Refn trilogy, trilogy of masculinity. Uh, we are going to be showing Bronson on 35. Yes! Drive on 35 millimeter. And only God forgives, I hope, on 35 millimeter. He made this trilogy of movies basically about wounded, hyper-masculine central characters. I actually am a big fan of all three movies, although Drive and Bronson are amazing. Only God Forgives began Reffin's divisive period where people liked it or hated it. Only God Forgives famously was wildly booed at Cannes. But I'm I'm a fan, so we're going to do that trilogy. And then on Wednesday, the 8th, uh, we are going to do the first of three Wednesdays doing Satoshi Kon's Paranoia Agent, his amazing series from Japan. Uh, We are going to do episodes 1 through 4, then the next Wednesday, episodes 5 through 8, and the final Wednesday, episodes 9 through 13. It runs five and a half hours total. We're going to do about 100 minutes a night. And then on Thursday, this is a crazy idea, but I have to do it. We're going to do a kind of Irish wake and celebration of the Golden Girls because I love that show. I love Betty White. I'm really sad that Betty White has passed and now we have no more Golden Girls left. And I actually think that that sitcom was revolutionary in a bunch of ways. We are going to celebrate some of the greatest episodes. If people want to get up and talk about Betty, B. Arthur, Rue McClanahan, Estelle Getty, they can. If you've never seen the Golden Girls, it's got some of the sharpest writing of that time. I love to celebrate every now and then an out-of-the-box idea. And we are doing a tribute, elegy to the Golden Girls, Thursday night. And as always, you can write... Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Find out what we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Go to Eventbrite to get tickets. Moving on. Today, by the time you hear this, we'll have finished. uh, We did four movies in May. Battle of Algiers, written and directed by Guillaume Pornocovo. Carlos, which was written and directed by Olivier Assayas. Che, which was directed by Steven Soderbergh, rewritten by Terence Malick, but written by several people, starring Benicio del Toro. And then Election, co-adapted and directed by Alexander Payne about an American high school election that really actually becomes a beautiful satire and microcosm for American politics uh, writ large. I wanted to do this because I think making movies about politics... It's very, very hard. It's almost impossible not to let your own political stripe shine through. And most people pull punches for their political side, even when they say they don't, they do. And then they just exoriate or attack the other side without actually ever trying to understand why the other side is the way they are. The example I always give is when we did our drive-ins, one of the guys who worked at the drive-ins had spent some time in jail. I'm not going to say his name right here because I don't know that he'd want it. I loved him. He and I got along famously. I, for some reason, because of his race, he was Latino. He'd grown up in L.A. He was a really cool guy. He used to like, you know, smoke out with people, and, and we used to jam and stuff. I just assumed, for some reason, he would be an independent or slightly left of center. I don't know why I assumed that. He turned out to be extremely right-wing. And what I discovered is that many people who have done time in prison hate, <laughs> no surprise, Laws that they feel are unfair, and they often consider the left as the party that just has to make laws all the time. And so, uh, weirdly, the right will often say they're the party of personal freedom, which is ironic given what appears to be an overturning of Roe v. Wade. We can talk about that. But my point is just being that each side often sees themselves as being on the side of God and the angels, and they always see the other side as being the side that God doesn't support, the wrong side, the wrong side of history. And it's not a very productive way to have political conversations. And most political movies, even when they try— sort of show their political stripes. The greatest thing I read in doing my research, Olivier Assayas said when he made Carlos he wanted to make a movie about politics, not a political film.
2: I do agree with Craig. I don't really have a lot of like political movies that are about real things that I like. I do think the term politics has kind of lost all meaning In modern day, there's a lot of, like, weirdo right-wing people who will, like, see, like, the new Battlefield game will have, like, a black woman on the cover, and they'll be like, oh, this is political. And there's, like, a meme online in left-wing-ish circles, liberal-ish circles about there's like two races white and political there's two genders male and political and that there's been a reframing in recent years that anytime you have any sort of representation that that becomes political or any like what's the difference between a politic and a moral you know what i mean like yeah yeah
3: yeah these are all the climate is crazy right
2: now it becomes really blurred ground and it's hard to say what it is i tend to View politics in the abstract more as like the idea of like systems of government and things like that around you and systems of power. My favorite of the movies we're showing, one of my favorite movies ever, Election, is weirdly, I think you can read it as specifically about the politics of our culture, but more than anything, it's about, and the movie frames this kind of obviously, but it works of morals and ethics which is more of like a meaning theme thing than a political thing. I mean, it can be political, but my read on both the movie and things at large, morals being a more internal code and ethics being more an external set of rules that we abide by. And it's interesting because the four characters in that movie, you can create like a graph (laughs) where one character has no morals and no ethics, and one character has both, and then the other two characters each have one of each. And how would you
3: define that? Can you name them, just so I know how you're defining it?
2: I think Matthew Broderick has neither. The Chris Klein, right? The stupid kid, he has both. And then the girls, Tracy has ethics but no morals, and the other girl has the opposite, has morals but no ethics. And what that means at the end is the two characters with ethics, the two characters that seem to abide by the rules, by everybody's understanding, they seem to be in a better place than the other two. But conversely, and this is most interesting with Tracy Flick and the uh, the sister, on the inside, the sister is in a lot better, happier place than Tracy Flick is, who seems to be just kind of as miserable <laughs> as she always is at the end of the movie, being this sort of type A, always wanting something better.
3: I mean, that's such a succinct and great read of that movie. And it is true, it pulls off a nifty hat trick Where I think initially you empathize and sympathize with Matthew Broderick's character only to come to realize that he's really the villain of the piece in a a really interesting way, because he feels that his personal read on the election trumps everything, no pun intended, but takes precedence over how an election's supposed to run brilliant movie and hilariously funny
2: the siblings are the more sympathetic characters uh, in the movie for sure because they just seem to at the very least have their heart in the right place especially the boy is just so stupid and so endearing
3: i love that monologue at the beginning where he's like Thank you, God, for what everyone tells me is an enormously large penis.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but he's, he's humble about it still, even, totally. even still.
3: He doesn't even vote for himself. That's like such a, from a screenwriting point of view, or that was an adapted novel, but that's how you know who he is. Like, it didn't feel right to him to vote for himself. And you're like, wow, well, he's a good guy.
0: Absolute power is great. I love when Clay takes down the president. That's a good one. Tell us the premise of that one. Clay Swift is a cat burglar. He goes into the wrong house at the wrong time. Ends up uh, finding out that the president was sleeping with some random woman. Turns out to be the wife of a famous uh, dude. You know, his secret serviceman killed her by accident because King Hackman was getting a little rough. And uh, now Clint Eastwood is being hunted down by the president's secret service, and he's got to take him down. Do you he's see how your
3: selection of movies turned Daniel back into the cow avatar? Look, look
0: I, I, I get two sh- about the political system. I, I don't care. I just care about the movies. And how I care how portrayed, and that's it. But yeah, absolute power is great. Because you've always said this,
3: as the resident young
0: person in this podcast,
3: when you hear politics or political film or whatever, what do you feel when you hear
0: that? But mainly political stuff, I don't care. But it comes to movies, I do care because it makes me hate them even more now. And why do you hate them? Because it's just stupid. They're all dumb. I just hate it. I
3: get the feeling that a lot of your generation potentially shares your views. In doing my research for stuff we're going to be doing for the rest of the year, and I've already mentioned this in a previous podcast, it was telling me that we have to remember that your generation, Gen Z, you just dislike being advertised to. You dislike when people are trying to get you to do things and you can tell. And I think that politics, even the way it's played today by politicians, your generation must just see through it so quickly that it must just turn you off because they must all seem phony. To you. They're all phony. They're all lies, man. Yeah, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it would be the same thing. You would just see through the marketing and the advertising and not want to be a part of it. I don't.
2: To be fair, Edwin you use that as an excuse for apathy, which I think is not a good thing. And I don't know if Edwin is a great sample size for his generation either. That's a
3: good point. Edwin would be maybe an outlier. I think it's a huge danger when citizens in a democracy cease to believe in civic action and voting and getting involved. I mean, that's how democracies die. Therefore, if Edwin represents a feeling, people who want to see our democracy die are winning not only by incentivizing people who agree with them to be politically active, but by disincentivizing people like Edwin to be politically active. I think that's something that people who believe in America and democracy, whatever, you, you, it has to be wrestled with.
1: Politics are heavy and they've become such a personal thing that it's difficult to discuss them because you find that it rifts families, especially the last few years in the climate, which is interesting. And sort of these ideals that I think maybe my parents' generation had. Where you know family is family, family is blood, has divided because the if your political views are from a moral perspective too, then having family that conflicts with that makes it really difficult. Well, there's
3: an interesting factoid, Daniel, to your point that's been around now for a while, but that it used to be that parent. I mean, and this is this is also <laughs> shameful. It used to be that parents had a bigger issue if their son or daughter dated someone of a different race. Now, parents have a bigger issue if they date someone who's on the other, in America, on the other political side. Republicans will be dismayed to no end if their child dates a Democrat. And Democrats will be dismayed to no end if their child dates a Republican, which seems loony to me. Also, race seems loony to me, but it just seems loony both of
2: them. To be fair, child Republican is like a special... That's so weird. You got to start off on the other end.
1: We're in the information era, but <laughs> it's still, you know, a two-party thing. So it's just you pick your side, I guess. And you don't have to have an opinion because you can just go behind the opinion of this general view. And this weird thing where we should have access to all this information, it's instead warped by all of the information that anyone can attest to. And then if you see the thing that aligns with this belief you might have, that's now truth. And so it's this whole shebang.
0: I'll bring it by use the restroom real it's, quick. It's, a, <laughs> it's a, <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs>
1: In a casual movie podcast, it's a lot. Well, and in terms of like the art around it, I'm super curious to see how like the next generation of artists looks back on it and reacts to it. Because I think we have reactive art now. But I'm super interested to see how the generation that's growing up within all this and is coming to terms with their knowledge of it and then the ability to fight it, whichever way they align will be really fascinating. So in the realm of art, my favorite things in regards to politics are sort of the look backs at, even if they were reactive at the time, sort of the stories inside different, even beyond just like government politics, but like corporate politics and sort of the way that we as American people are led around and tricked and used for capitalism gain and stuff. So I, the one I always go back to is Michael Mann's The Insider which is about the um, tobacco industry and sort of a whistleblower within the tobacco industry. My favorite Michael Mann movie. I think I might agree, though I love Collateral too. But it sort of tricks you because it's about this whistleblower, but it's also about journalism, which all of my favorite... Political movies ultimately are about journalism. Uh, I mean, All the President's Men is the easy one. But even Spielberg's The Post and Spotlight. Zodiac. There's something about journalism that just, I don't know what it does, but it scratches an itch on my brain that I love. But it's it's so interesting because a lot of these you watch and it paints these almost Star Wars levels of black and white where there's good and there's evil. And it seems so easy to comprehend. And then they get layered on top of it and you realize that it can never be that easy. For some people, it is that easy. It's just this evil thing. It's this good thing. But the ways that they're tempted and the ways that the money controls things is really alarming. We have access to all these things. This is just, you know, fictionalized versions of maybe true events uh, in this regard. But we have that and it doesn't matter that we have that. You can watch that and it could just be fiction to you. And The other one I turned to a lot, slightly more recently, was um, Tony Gilroy's Michael Clayton from the late 2000s. I really
3: love that one. That's a great one. It's a good movie.
1: More bah- focused, but a kind of political thriller about a chemical company that's getting, I think, class action loss has been brought against them. But just the ins and out of the system that we're sort of led to believe protect us, but using real world examples and the ways that it actually does, it makes it seem alarmingly like maybe we aren't, you know, maybe this thing, I can't wrap my head around it exactly to give the words, but the best political thrillers play out like horror movies, because you realize it's not that much fiction. It's all built on real life. And that is sucks.
3: We live in an era which actually is the norm, not the exception. I think the thing we have to recognize is that the era of talking about ethics, Connor, the era of journalistic ethics is actually relatively small compared to the eras of information control and abuse. I'm I'm not a very smart political thinker, and that's not false humility. I'm just not. I wish I was. But something I know from history and and what you see is that totalitarian and fascist and dictatorial uh, societies, the thing that they need to control is information and a representation and how the public is receiving information. And that post World War II era of journalistic ethics where you had to get two sources that validated a fact And most people would trust what they read in the paper. There were only three networks. The networks played it down the middle in terms of the news. You couldn't editorialize. If you heard a story, you would know that the fact checkers had fact checked it. That era now almost seems like a Greek ideal because it seems like we're sliding back into this era where people would prefer to get the message they want to hear. And it's becoming entertainment again, and it's becoming balkanized. So if you're, I'm a libertarian, I get my news from here. If I'm a Republican, I get my news from here. If I'm a Trump Republican, I get my news from here. So much so that Trump, even though it's faltering, which I think is interesting, formed his own social media company, ironically called Truth, because Twitter had banned him. But <laughs> the information is becoming balkanized in how we receive it. And there's not really a trusted news source that's adjust the facts. They've done all
2: the fact-checking. That's Sinclair Broadcast Group. I mean, let's shout out a, a big evil that maybe people don't even know. They own a total of 193 stations across the country in 100 markets, covering 40% of American households, many of which are located in the South and Midwest. This is from Wikipedia. A 2019 study in the American Political Science Review found that stations bought by Sinclair reduced coverage of local politics, increase national coverage, and move the ideological tone of Coveraging in a conservative direction relative to other stations operating in the same market. They contain a lot of pro-Trump editorial content, including warnings about purported fake news in mainstream media, even though, again, they cover 40% of the country. And yeah, I mean, there's that's like a big thing. Hopefully my relatives don't listen to this, but like every time I talk to some of my aunts back home, they're always like, what about that big fire in L.A.? And I'm like, what? And like, usually there is a fire, to be fair, but... <laughs> It's like the only th- news they ever get about Los Angeles is whenever there's like something horrible happening.
3: That just happened to me, Connor. It's so funny. I, I have to say beg about this, but a girlfriend I haven't talked to in quite a while texted me and asked if my mom was OK. And I was like, huh? Yeah, and it was great to hear from her. And, and I was like, was like, well, that horrible fire in Orange County. And I texted my mom, and my sister, and they were like, it's not really that big. I, and so to your point. I just experienced that.
2: This is me getting on my I want to reclaim conspiracy theories for the left wing. This is me getting on my old my old leftist conspiracy box. But I genuinely think that that's like a thing. People push those narratives about L.A. because they want it to be like the modern Sodom and Gomorrah or whatever. And so they want it to be this like hellhole that's just burning all the time, which fair, <laughs> but also not really true.
3: You know, we were all having a conversation a day or two ago about TikTok. Because something that people aren't fully aware of is that TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. And the algorithm in China for people using TikTok in China is very educational and shows these really sort of flattering images of Chinese accomplishing things. But the algorithm in the United States is actually ginned up to emphasize Americans doing really stupid things. And that's a very subtle form of a government or company utilizing an entertainment to sort of disseminate a subtle political or societal message. From the movies that we just saw, you know, what I loved about what Olivier Assayas said about making movies about politics, not political films, is when I saw Carlos, or I think when you see There are very few of them, but Carlos would be one of them. Even the Battle of Algiers, even though in the end its sympathies are clearly with the Algerians and not with the uh, French colonialists, I think what he's saying is you make a movie that shows how people really behave on all sides of an issue. Whereas a political film, it's funny, somebody at the Battle of Algiers screening, he and I were talking and laughing at the Carlos screening. We talked about late 60s period Godard. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Weekend or Edwin has seen Sympathy for the Devil. But as Godard movies progressed in the 60s, suddenly characters were just reading from Mao's Little Red Book. And I know at that time in France, Chinese communism and Maoist communism felt like it might be the answer. And I know that certainly they were looking at American imperialism in Vietnam and they were being radicalized by what they felt was You know French colonialism in Indochina and Algeria, and then American colonialism and imperialism in Vietnam. But their answer was Mao, who killed over six million of his own people. I I got—I think it's ten million in the counter-revolution of the sixties and seventies. And John Lennon famously wrote the song "Revolution" to say, "Look, if you're going to scream at me about Mao, (laughs) like I'm not going to talk to you because Mao is no answer." I find that for me when a movie starts and you can feel it right away I don't know if you guys can feel it but can you guys feel when movies are trying to tell you that they're on the side of God politically sometimes yeah yeah. maybe that's not the right way to say it that's kind of an extreme way of saying it and I'm creating like I'm ginning up a response but what I mean let me give you an example is that when I see Godard and Weekend and I see this gorgeous blonde French woman in her 20s with a bandana and a machine gun and she's reading about communism, I feel, oh, I think he wants me to feel she's right and that I need to listen to this and that the young are correct, but it's aged horribly. And I think that when you see movies that aren't trying to lecture you that, hey, this political standpoint is correct, but rather let's look at what this side was doing. Let's look at what this side was doing. There were some good people on this side, some good people on this side, some bad people on this side. And it's more about human nature. And maybe Connor, to your point, morals and ethics, I find those movies endure way better than movies that seem to endorse a political viewpoint of the moment because you don't have the perspective of where that political viewpoint is going to go.
2: I think it just depends on the movie and who's doing it. And, you know, again, like what's sometimes the difference between like morals and politics? Like, you know, I think that it is a moral thing that gay and other queer people should be treated like humans there are some people who would say that's a political issue and so what do you get there you know I, i see that sort of stuff in everything i mean like you see it in like action movies especially in america oh yeah for sure in the 80s even now like even still even stuff i like there's so much like jingoistic stuff even in stuff that's supposed to be like, more progressive, allegedly. Like, one of my biggest issues with Falcon and the Winter Soldier last year was that they set up these two villains in that show, one of which who is clearly kind of representing a left ideal and one who's clearly representing a right ideal. And while the show in some ways leans progressive because of certain aspects they still at the end of the show redeem the right wing villain and don't and just blow up the left wing ones i was like okay all right well i guess you can't have people killing people to get other people food i guess that's the thing you can't morally justify
3: do you ever wonder you know when you're in your own culture it's really hard sometimes because you're a nerd to it to pick up the jingoism Sometimes you're really moved by it.
2: Oh, for sure.
3: And then someone needs to tell you who's outside of your culture. Guys, you didn't notice that there was just like an American flag waving in the sun every time there was a good guy or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you just don't even realize.
2: Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies are the fact that in the new movie, the character who's kind of a MacGuffin at the center of the movie named America Chavez, her name is America. So Dr. Strange has all these lines. I think this is more of a goof. This is me being a goof, but he has all these lines like, we have to save America. America, you have the power in you all along. But yeah, no, for sure, I admire, like, you're wearing that Fassbender shirt and I admire that quote about shooting in all directions, but what's interesting is if you got a gun and you shot in every direction, like, a forensic scientist would be able to locate exactly where you were. And so I think it's interesting to note that as much as you want to try to criticize everybody, you're always going to betray your own opinions on those things. And fundamentally, someone is going to be like, oh, that's something that I view as whatever, like, oh, that's political. One of my favorite movies is Brazil, and I think that's a movie that can be read in a lot of different left-wing or right-wing directions.
3: Yeah, sometimes some of the best movies about politics can be read both ways, which is sort of a fascinating thing. You know, it's funny to me how some of the greatest works of society and civilization are so profoundly moving that both sides embrace it as representing and proof of their validity. One of the things that I always that I always find to be a bit of cognitive dissonance is how each side, at least in America, this is a very American politics, will be dumbfounded if you point out things that are annoying about their side. I've experienced this tons of times where you'll have a conversation with people on the left and they'll be dumbfounded about how people on the right view them. And then you'll talk to people on the right and they'll be dumbfounded at how people on the left view them. So much so that they don't recognize themselves in the representation. I don't even know where to go with that other than how far off are we on some kind of common ground of conversation that we don't even recognize ourselves in the stereotype and representation the other side has of us. Um, any final thoughts on politics in films? No. <laughs>
0: All right, pop culture, final thoughts. I watched Bushwhacked. Bushwhacked is terrible, but it's funny. It's Home Alone in the mountains and Daniel Stern. Looks like he's having a great time. Bushwhacked is great. It's on HBO Max. You should watch it.
2: I got a new board game recently that I played with my parents and they loved it. I played with some other friends. And they really liked it, too. It's called Sagrada, S-A-G-R-A-D-A, Sagrada. Mm-hmm. You're using dice to make little uh, stained glass windows. It's really fun. And you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and see me play uh, D&D Tuesday evening, twitchtv slash NerdHala.
1: I'm going to take my dog on a walk here in a few minutes. I'm going to try the new Starbucks Super Smooth Chocolate Cream Cold Brew, <laughs> top with mm-hmm. a cloud of silky, chocolatey, cold foam. And uh, I'll let you guys know how it, how it tastes. We
3: are not brought to you by Star w-
1: Sponsor us. Give us some. Well, let your workers unionize and then sponsor us. <laughs>
3: Speaking <laughs> of politics. Every Sunday, Marta and I, we try to make it a family day. Uh, we have the whole day together. And we we try to do an adventure with the kids. Just make it a kid day. So we went to the Museum of Natural History here in Los Angeles. Uh, thanks for the invite, man. <laughs> okay, next time, Edwin. We're maybe going to go to that Dino exhibit in Montebello if you want to see live you know mecca dinosaurs Craigie's all about these he's dropped spider-man he's all about dino's now good hell yeah we, we went to uh the museum of natural history right across from usc uh, in exposition park and we went because of dinosaurs because craiggy wanted to see dinosaurs and they've got all these dinosaur skeletons and exhibits but actually the exhibit that moved me was they have these dioramas of animals in africa You've probably seen these in in movies like Night at the Museum and New York Museum famously has these. But now I was unsettled because on one hand, I was like, am I just looking at a bunch of taxidermy of dead animals? Which I think I am. Probably it's got to be because of the versimilitude. But, you know, I'm walking with my daughter, Carmen, who has Down syndrome. But, you know, she's great, vital, vibrant. And she goes right to the elephants and giraffes. And she's fascinated by the diorama because it sort of recreates the serengeti and the savannah and she's looking at baby giraffes and elephants and i think there was a wildebeest there or whatever and some birds and she just kept going back to it Craigie was going to the silverback gorillas and the monkeys and all our breath was kind of taken away and there were those 2001 emu wildebeest things whatever those are that the monkey they were there it was this weird reminder that all that's going to come out is clichés but these are animals that exist now in our world and we were all transported with wonder to be able to get that close to them because you can't obviously in real life uh, or shouldn't but to get that close to a hippo who would charge you and kill you if you ever got that close in real life or a silverback gorilla and i was just filled with this sense of wonder and awe or the dinosaur skeletons and how they used to think that t-rexes were upright now they know that they walked basically parallel to the ground because they were always moving really quick so hey if you're in the la area or any area that has a Museum of Natural History, just go and be filled with wonder. I mean, because in the end, I think it all kind of comes to one. For me, you know, you can feel wonder at many things. There's this Rumi quote, a Sufi mystic, and he said, the revealer of mystery and that which is revealed are one and the same. And I love when that happens. So I was just filled with wonder and awe at animals and science. As always, you can find out about everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite. Write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. When you hear this, we're going to be showing Naked Lunch on 35mm, David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. Tomorrow, we are going to be doing the Nicholas Winding Raffin trilogy of wounded masculinity. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing Satoshi Kon's Paranoia Agent, episodes one through four, anime, TV classic, and then on Thursday, a celebration of the Golden Girls. I really can't. Overstate. If you've never seen the Golden Girls, you don't know the Golden Girls. My sister and I were eight and six years old, and that was destination TV for us. An eight and six-year-old <laughs> watching six-year-old women who live with an 80-year-old woman in Florida sit around a coffee table and talk about their ex-husbands. And it was great. And we just totally bonded with the four of them. And Betty White was a national treasure, and I'm going to celebrate Betty White and Rue McClanahan and B. Arthur and Estelle Getty, And even if it's just me.
0: I'm celebrating. I know the perfect movie to advertise for that. Just so you know. I think you already know what it is. Lake Placid. Starship Troopers. What? Stop or my mom will shoot. Stop or my mom
3: will shoot. Starring Estelle Getty and Sylvester Stallone. Exactly. I'm going to post that soon. And uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 108 is actually an exciting one. We're going to be talking about this great Spanish film called Time Crimes by Nacho Vigalando, which is, I think, one of the greatest time travel movies ever made. It does this great thing where it has a high concept, but it basically all takes place in two houses, essentially, in the space between them. So it's a low-budget execution of a high-concept idea done about as well as you can and then we're going to have a special guest eva on the show eva is a czech filmmaker she has had her movies in her open mic short nights and her movies have been sci-fi movies uh it's wonderful to have her talking about she too has done low budget high concept and as always these episodes are edited by our chief creative content officer Connor lloyd Cruz. and uh that's it have a great week guys
1: bye Bye. Bye. Bye, bye. bye meow
3: This is Secret Movie Club Podcast 107.
1: Daniel? Connor? Batman? That's Kevin. Sorry. Kevin. Okay. okay. Sorry.
2: Kevin, don't, don't you ever mistake my dog barking for his dog barking ever again.